Hello and welcome to the January 2024 edition of On the Horizon, which is our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. And so, Henry. Yes. Christmas has been and gone. Well, it certainly has in my mind, Glenn. And the new year is here. It is. And it's time to focus on 2024. Yes. And I'm already thinking about ATPI, BTME, and of course, ESC, which is already a speck on that horizon. E-S-C, Henry. Yes. Malmo is calling, Glenn. Oh, God. You're serious, aren't you? <laughs> that and tea, Glenn. Always deadly serious about tea and ESC. Anyway, shall we start, as always, with a summary of the climatic data for January? Uh, which refers specifically to the UK and Ireland. And we base our discussions on data collected during the last 10 years. That's right, Henry. OK, so, Glenn, what is the story? Because you've been telling us for a while now that we just need to get through January in good shape and then things will get a whole lot easier because the disease pressure in particular should start to drop. So is this still the case, Glenn, or have you just been stringing us along? Well, let's have a little look and see what's going on, shall we? Because it is never simple, but I hope that at last, in January, the odds of a better run of things are now leaning in our favour. Well, let's hope so. Um, okay, so let's begin our monthly run through with the soil moisture balance situation. Uh, so, what should we expect from January? Well, the same as last month, really, Henry. It's huh. still wet uh, because there's no major evapotranspiration to speak of yet. We're still loitering around that 20 to 25 millimetres of evapotranspiration for the month. So in order for us to dry out, we're going to need long breaks of dry weather, strong winds, decent soils and some decent drainage. And we have to be aware that the slightest amount of rain will mean we are wet again very quickly. So we could be going into our fourth or fifth month of a row with rainfall seriously outweighing evapotranspiration. OK, so our heavier soils are going to be full and it's probably going to be wet underfoot. And a look at our precipitation versus evapotranspiration figures on the Syngenta Turf Advisor app will most likely be a testament to that. Most likely, but you never know. It's so important to keep an eye on it day to day. It is. And so I presume that it is also likely to be getting colder during January? Well, much more consistently cold now, Henry. Temperatures around minus four to minus five are very possible in January. Um, and that's certainly always my memory of Harrogate and BTME, which we know is in January. Yes, things can certainly take a turn that way in the new year. But that can be in our favour, can't it? Because those low temperatures can really help to slow down the development of microdochian patch disease, 
But such cold weather is not always a given in January, is it? And there is still a chance of relatively mild conditions to keep that microdochium patch disease fired up and still active. Yes, yeah, it's possible. Um, we see anything up to about 14 degrees in January. So cold weather really isn't a certainty. But in the main, the temperatures stay on the cooler side much more consistently now. Well, 14 degrees is, is certainly mild enough for, for microdochium patch disease, especially if those, you know, mild temperatures team up with significant leaf wetness. Yeah, but, but as always, Henry, 14 degrees is an extreme. It's a high yes. end of what we can expect. And the averages are a much better tool to help us prepare for the month ahead. Yeah, we find this, don't we, that the, the averages are usually more helpful when we're trying to get... Um, our heads in the right place for the month ahead yeah okay so average wise january tends to hover around two to three degrees overnight mm -hmm. and reaches a high of seven to eight in the day that's an average figure broadly speaking across the country yeah and that well that certainly feels more like btme weather doesn't it up in harrogate cold overnight and maybe sneaking down to frosty levels and probably not lifting that much during the day. Yeah, January seems to be when those true winter temperatures finally arrive. Those overnight temperatures consistently drop low enough to slow microdochium patch development right down to a crawl. But it can, of course, lift and throw some awkward situations our way. But at last, at least, I think the odds fall in our favour. OK, well... You know, let's not get giddy because last month you were saying how mild the, the end of December can be. So when does that change then? Well, recent years have seen us go through into the new year with temperatures of anything up to 14 or 15 degrees. Mm. But that Christmas temperature spike that we see or we have seen recently tends to be the last spike of the year. And, and then we begin that transition into the new year. It's not instant, Henry, but the colder weather is certainly more reliable in January than it is in December. And last year we saw it again. Cold two weeks beginning of December, mild back end of December. And then we go into the new year with mild temperatures. But then we cooled off and we stayed there quite consistently for the next month or two. Right, so if you look at the recent years, um, the other thing that is very noticeable is the last two weeks of January and the first two weeks of February are the coldest point of the year. That is when we reach our lowest point. But of course, this is the UK and it is never as reliable as we want. But what we can say is the odds of it being cold, certainly through the back half of January, increase massively, but we can never rely on it. Okay. All right. So, so it's been, it has been a long run, hasn't it, through autumn and early winter, um, with that microdochium patch disease pressure being fairly constant throughout. Yeah, it's a long battle, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so, in January, do we tend to get enough of those sub two degree stopping hours to reduce that disease pressure? And and what about the leaf wetness? Does that drop off too? What is the likely risk of the disease making another surge in the new year, Glenn? Well, it's a great question. And when we look around the UK, there are some interesting numbers. But even in the milder places like Dublin in Ireland, uh, we're now going to be seeing, on average, 2.8 hours of sub-2 degree hours every day and about 10 and a quarter hours of leaf wetness a day on average. 
Okay, so it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? But but even for Dublin, which, you know, by the sound of it, would be one of the trickier places at this time of year to keep on top of microdochium patch disease, it should just about be reaching a better place in January uh, with lower levels of disease pressure as a result of those lower temperatures, you know, if we can trust the recent averages. Yeah, other areas of the country are now reaching a good solid six hours a day of sub two degree hours. That's both for north and south locations. Uh, Kent down in the southeast seems to be a particularly cold when you look at the data. So cold weather is not just a northern thing once we get into January. It seems to hit us pretty consistently. Uh, the south coast often showing some much colder extreme temperatures than north, but more of a milder average figure, just showing that they can kind of catch some of those Easterlies a bit more on the coast, maybe. Um, now, of course, leaf wetness continues on on the same theme as December of 10 to 15 hours a day, dependent on your location, which, you know, of course, will strongly vary. But the reason it's so consistent in January to December is it's strongly related to the length of the night. And we are still very close to that shortest day. Yes, Okay, so leaf wetness is still high, but but hopefully those temperatures are leading to microdochium patch disease stopping or at least slowing down in January with those lower temperatures. Well, yes, but these are the averages, aren't they? And of course, Turf Advisor can help steer and guide your short-term thinking. We're just here to set the mindset based on the long-term averages. It's likely there'll be periods when we see blips of milder conditions, which will kick disease on, but the chances of them lasting for long periods now are minimal, and Turf Advisor can help us pick these mild windows out. Now, of course, life is so much easier in this period if we come into this time frame, this colder weather, really clean of disease, because microdochium patch pressure can still pop up when those temperatures occasionally spike. Yeah, well, because the leaf wetness is still sky high, isn't it? So we do have sort of conducive conditions lying in wait during January. Yeah, most places are still around half of the day, aren't they, uh, yes. of high leaf wetness. Mm, okay, and so it is clear now that we are pretty much solely reliant on low temperatures during January to give us some respite from that disease. And while the average temperatures are lower, we might still encounter some milder spells with uh, 5 to 14 degrees actually being ideal for microdochium patch disease. And so we do have to keep our eyes on on that forecast yes but those milder weather conditions are quite easy to watch for henry that is temperatures are one of the more accurate weather metrics to watch okay but hopefully we'll see the onset of colder conditions in january which should mark the end of our long preventative battle too uh, in our war against microdochium patch disease and we can start thinking about our final battle battle three uh, control strategies and uh, making our way through to spring with as little damage as possible but how we approach battle three will largely depend on how well we have fared so far during battle two yeah the chances are we will at least get some weather that will help us out but we need to be on our guard recognize the different strategies needed depending on how we've come through those battles one and two 
And remember that in January, the cold weather is our friends. We should welcome it with open arms and start up those chainsaws. Well, yes, and hopefully things might actually start to break in our favour during January. So, Glenn, what level of golfer expectation might we encounter during January? Okay, probably not too high, if I'm honest and I remember back. Hopefully the temperature has at last dropped below those micronovian patch development con- favourable conditions we speak about. But with that, with those low temperatures, means that the growth has slowed right down too. And that's something we can keep an eye on in Turf Advisor. And what that's likely to show is that growth potential is slowed down to around 5% or less for most of us during January. Meaning we are going to have to hold on for recovery until those growth waves start returning. Yes, uh, early spring growth waves could actually start at any time, you know, in short bursts. But the the advent of more consistent and meaningful growth will probably be a while away yet. But we do sometimes see better conditions develop in March and April if the weather drops nicely for a time. Yeah, it could be May as well. Or June, if those easterlies stick around in May. You know, as always, we, you know, we do have to be patient because, well, it can be a long drag until the first signs of spring and so for a while yet growth will largely be out of our hands Mm. but what we can do though and in fact we probably have to do is protect the golf course during this period yeah Um, so it's highly likely that we've gone the last four months trying to keep things in the best shape we can doing all the important things moving ropes managing traffic preventing disease But now is when the real hard work starts because that growth has gone. We now have to keep those strategies going and we've probably got to double our efforts. Okay, so what are you thinking, Glenn? Well, are you ready for one of my lists, Henry? Always ready for a list, Glenn. Okay, things like moving holes regularly, moving ropes, using rubber mats at the end of paths, thinking about greenkeeper traffic routes. They do as much damage as golfers do. Moving tee markers daily, adopting some AstroTurf on appropriate weaker tees, really good communication with the membership, educate the membership in the benefits of carrying bags rather than taking trolleys, thinking about how you rake bunkers and where you escape out of those bunkers and the impact of your own wear in those areas. There is loads we can do now to protect the golf course that will make a huge difference to how it comes through this difficult period. And... The important thing is to show how much you care and keeping a sense of pride about what you do during this period because it goes a long way to keeping the membership on board. And I think when you show members you care, that is such a critical part of the role, especially at this time. Yeah, they sometimes forget that at this time of year, especially if the course has been closed for a while. Yeah, but I think post-Christmas, you might be able to get the balance right. The greens can be pretty good. We could have low growth, but if we've got decent coverage and we came through the back end of last year with enough density for recovery during those occasional growth periods we get, then the challenge now is simply protection. And all the members will want you to do it. Of course they will. And they'll all recognise the importance of protecting the golf course. In fact, from my experience, they'll all insist that you do everything you can to make sure it's the best it possibly can be in the spring. 
as just as long as it doesn't really impinge on their round of golf too much because you know they still want to walk the same routes and they want to do the things that they do all year round and they want to take the same trolley but uh, at least they recognise that everyone else should be restricted, Henry. Yeah, yeah, they're good like that, aren't they? Okay, so so January is obviously a time to double down on protecting the course, but in a way that everyone fully appreciates that you still have their best interests at heart. Yes, indeed, and you need to get the team involved with this. Make sure your whole team know the score and what their role in this is. They need to be aware that they can make a massive difference at this time of year because everything will be going backwards and you're all in a delaying process. You know, if you get them on board, your team become your greatest asset through January, February and March. Yeah, that's right. You know, it is such an important time, isn't it? Because if we can come through the next couple of months with the course still in relatively good shape, then the run through to spring becomes so much easier, both politically as well as agronomically. So, Henry, what are the agronomic risks during January for the UK and Ireland? Well, Glenn, well, as we've just discussed, really, uh, the key factor at this time of year is the lack of growth. Yes, we have reached that low point in terms of light levels and temperatures. And the other thing to think about, both the soil moisture content and the duration and extent of leaf wetness are at their height and against us too. Yes, yes. Yeah, it can be tricky, can't it? And so protection is the key, you know, from any form of deterioration. And so the management of play and traffic uh, when conditions aren't suitable are just as important as our agronomic strategies for maintaining plant health and preventing disease outbreaks. Yes, and we're hoping for some help from the weather to ease that disease pressure if and when it turns cold. Yep, the odds of some of those helpful sub-two degree stopping hours are fairly good, as you were just saying, in January to help slow down the development of microdochian patch disease. But, as we were also saying, cold conditions aren't absolutely certain and if it remains mild coming into the new year then we might need to extend our preventative microdochian patch disease battle to strategies and so we just need to keep an eye on the forecast in our turf advisor app to help us stay properly focused. Yes, January still has the potential to go either way in reality. Disease can remain high, which could mean that you need to keep going with your belt and braces ITM approach. But hopefully it turns and it stays cold and we can think about easing back a touch. That's right. And so it's important that we are alive to that agronomic distinction between a cold and a mild January and there might not be too much difference between the two, actually, but it makes a difference, especially to our management plan. But hopefully, if it does turn properly cold, we might be able to um, relax a little with our ap applications, certainly for a little while. Yeah, watch those temperatures. They are the key driver. And the two-week average number in Turf Advisor is really important and useful here. But temperature isn't the only factor. Soil temperature will have an impact Humidity has an impact on the disease pressure, leaf wetness, 
But fundamentally, as a key, I would say just keep an eye on that temperature. Uh, growth potential is useful. If we're below 5%, then we can be confident we're in a good, pretty good place. Um, but, you know, just remember, Medallion is our friend if all of those other factors gang up against us, even if the temperature is low. But if the temperature lifts up and all the other factors are also against us, then we should be thinking maybe in Strata Elite if we have to reach for a fungicide, particularly if that growth potential gets above 5%. Mm, okay, so so we do need to keep our wits about us in January because it can still drop in different ways um, and we don't want to get caught out at this late stage of battle too because we are so nearly out of the woods but it is still a long time to be suffering from disease scarring until spring. Indeed, and hopefully we can settle into our less intensive battle-free strategies but as we've mentioned, that's going to depend on temperature, but also how well we came out of battle two. Yes, battle three, which is our sort of uh, run through until spring, can be either, you know, relatively easy or painfully hard. You know, it can be uh, relatively straightforward if we come out of battle two unscathed, but it could be absolute purgatory if we've sustained significant scarring along the way because those scars well first of all they can easily flare up again um, constantly during the month ahead but also because you know the advent of significant recovery growth to repair those scars might be a way away yet yes this time will be a lot easier to navigate through if you haven't got any disease scarring from the outset okay so battle three kind of officially starts when we move away from that constant disease pressure we experience during battle two uh, to sort of lower and more intermittent spells of disease pressure in amongst generally colder conditions yeah and of course the other factor with battle three is those colder conditions mean pretty much zero recovery and it would be inevitable that we we'll see some signs of disease activity during this period but it shouldn't be too aggressive and let's remember our objective for battle three and that is to retain enough turf coverage that when spring arrives we get quick recovery but remember, if we have sustained surface scarring, then we will need significant growth to get the surfaces back. And we know those conditions are very difficult to come by. Yes, because, you know, during Battle 3, um, on the run through to spring, growth is not a given. Uh, and at best, we could expect only weak or maybe intermittent pulses of, of kind of quite poor growing conditions, actually. Yeah, that's right, Henry. We can't rely on consistent growth during Battle 3, not until we reach the end of May or some years, even the start of June. And so we try to enter this period with as little damage as we possibly can because Battle 3 can really drag on. So if we do get into the new year with the Greens in good shape, Glenn, what do we need to do? OK, but we should say that good shape at this time isn't about avoiding disease completely. There is possibly going to be some scars about but just nothing too severe. We just need to retain our surface integrity and so 
keep monitoring the situation and protect the surfaces from sustaining serious damage. Yeah, okay, but but if the conditions are suitable for disease at this time, then it will come, maybe slowly, but it will build if we're not careful. Yes, and so our slow it down strategies must continue, but the zero out fungicide applications will become less necessary. But if the weather stays cold, the opportunity for disease development really slows down. If we keep our leaf wetness management strategies in place, we now have a chance of staying pretty clean with minimal fungicide applications until the warmer early spring weather comes along. And those waves of warmer weather will start rolling in soon to help us get some plant health and some density in place. Yes, and so what we're saying really is that we we just need to stay on our guard but if we're able to retain the turf density and integrity then the surfaces can actually be pretty good at this time yeah they can because green's growth has dropped right off so we might even be able to create some nice smooth putting surfaces Mm, okay glenn so if we've retained a good coverage uh, then we can approach battle three in a fairly relaxed manner Yeah, but be careful. Yes, because if the surfaces are scarred and uneven as a result of an unsuccessful or unlucky battle too, then it's going uh, to potentially be a long and painful winter. Yes, recovery might be a little while away yet. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and that makes the next four to five months potentially very painful. Yeah, well, it can do, can't it? You know, looking at a lot of disease scars and everyone playing on uneven surfaces is not going to be pleasant. Yeah, and those scars never really seem to stop waking up again, given even short bursts of conducive weather conditions. And so it's a constant battle to keep the disease down and also to try and get recovery. It's a painful time because the weather is always against you in one way or another. And if that is the case, I suppose, you know, we can become chained to fungicide applications or maybe even forcing fertilisers in this situation just to try and do something. Yeah, if we've been unlucky enough to have scarring at this point, it becomes inevitable that we need to place more focus on fungicides. Medallion on tighter windows will help reduce those spore populations in cold Januaries. It won't completely control the problem, um, and it certainly can't bring dead turf back to life, but it will slow down any further onslaughts. Uh, The challenge comes when we have these tricky surfaces because we are wanting to create smooth putting surfaces for our members to keep them on board. We might also be forced into keeping the cutting heights low to keep a decent surface. Uh, Then we're relying on rolling as well in probably damp conditions which aren't suited to it. It's really not great agronomically, but it becomes necessary to present the putting surfaces that you need. Now, I'm also really interested in your views on fertilisers here, Henry, because if we're trapped in that awkward purgatory position with disease scars flaring up, your fertiliser selection is going to be critical too. You know, what can we do if we're trapped there, whether it be our fault or just some bad luck, to try and gain some quicker recovery if we're in trouble? Well, Glenn, the milder winters that we've experienced in recent years might actually offer some help during a difficult battle three. And if we get lucky, 
uh, then there might be some opportunities for some recovery growth in February and March. So we, we certainly need to be alive to them and, and be ready to move with an appropriate fertiliser if we get a chance. We actually have some good trial data, courtesy of Andy, from Ireland, uh, which showed that good recovery from significant scarring can occur even during February, March and April, given decent conditions. In that case, a February or March application of the Greenmaster Pro-Lite Invigorator Plus, 4014 plus FE, on plots that had already sustained up to 20% microdochium patch disease coverage, it pretty much generated full recovery by April whereas the untreated plots just got worse and worse and ended up devastated at over 35% disease cover. Yeah, and that would be just in time for the masters. And so, yeah, and so simple measures can really work. But it was one of those mild winters. You just have to take your chances, Glenn, you know, when they come along. So maybe we can do something to get out of a fix if we keep our eyes on potential opportunities. Yeah, now let's try and be positive. Let's remember this is only temporary. Let's try to recognise a tough battle free for what it is. If you get caught in that position, just build more robust plans for the following season. Keep communicating with the club about the challenges that you've got and look honestly at your programme to see what you can do to put yourself in a better position next year. Yes, and if you're listening to this in December and your greens are still in good condition, then hold on. It's vitally important not to let it slip now because you're nearly there. Yeah, it's so easy to lose all of that good work over the Christmas period if you're not careful. Yeah, well, that's true, isn't it? The, the Christmas period is a huge hurdle to get over. It is indeed. Okay, and while we're at it, let's not forget um, about our pests and that our leather jacket grub monitoring program should also be continuing at this time, but that will also be dependent on how the weather drops in January. Yes, so we'll be able to continue with our small-scale sheeting, monitoring and data gathering if it remains mild, but we might have to call a halt to it all if the soil temperatures are dropping below 4 degrees, and that's when I think the grubs are becoming dormant. But keep it going if you can, because the numbers will ultimately help you guide your maintenance through the spring, and hopefully help you to prevent any nasty surprises um, of damaging infestations. And, you know, remember, we don't want to be spiking a cellar in treated areas with large round tines if we suspect we have an infestation lurking below that cellar layer. We want those grubs to have to struggle through that zone, and we certainly don't want to give them a free ride of an elevator shaft created by a verti drain. You know, just keep going with the monitoring because it will help you to decide what you need to do a little later on. It might make all the difference. Indeed. And if you've seen some high numbers, you might want to consider starting your sheeting process in January if it's a bit quieter and the weather breaks for the milder. Okay, is there anything else we need to think about, Henry? Yeah, well, snow. That might enter the game in January, uh, which we've discussed before. Yeah, and we did see a bit of that around in December this year. Yeah, we, we did. Mm. Yeah, it shouldn't hang around too long, though, if we get it in January to cause problems, but you never know. 
Um, so based on previous podcasts, I have another list. Excellent. Okay. Firstly, keep a close eye on the weather forecast and make sure to preserve plant health and turf quality going into this difficult period. Secondly, remember that the enemy is actually ice rather than snow because that is what suffocates the turf. But you should have a month or so of ice before you get any problems occurring. So for us in the UK and Ireland, that is not particularly likely. Uh, if we do get snow, then protect important areas from getting trapped under compacted snow as a result of some kind of snow compaction. Now, that could be driving machines over it. It could be sledges. It could come in a number of ways. But compacted snow is more dangerous. Um, snow on frozen ground shouldn't present a problem. So if the ground is frozen underneath it, we should be okay. But snow covering unfrozen ground could result in the development of significant disease activity, especially if there is active disease already at the time of covering. So all more pointing to try and keep those surfaces as clean as possible in preparation and keep an eye on that forecast. And of course, think about whether you might need to take a preventative fungicide measure when you're looking at that forecast in the run-up to forecasted falls of snow that you might think might stick around for a little while. Mm, okay, so fairly simple stuff. And in terms of frost, we just need to, to make sure actually that we've got our frost policy in place. Yes, but ultimately we just need to do what we think is best for the turf at any given time. Frost is not a black or white issue. Mm, okay, so January is potentially a tricking time because it can break in different ways. Uh, we need to be aware of the forecast and react accordingly. Mild conditions will certainly impact on our disease management strategy uh, and it might even mean a continuation of our preventative ITM approach. But essentially Essentially, we're hoping for colder weather to help slow down that development of disease. But, um, you know, be careful what you wish for, because in extreme cases, severe frosts and heavy lasting snowfalls uh, can also bring problems of their own. So it's important to stay focused on the forecast in January, because our passage towards spring is a lot easier without lots of damage to endure. It is indeed. Uh, so that's it, Henry. End of part one. What have we got lined up for part two? Well, you have a, a regulatory update, don't you? And then I'm having a chat with Richard Windows uh, from the Brilliant. RNA about sword species composition change. Excellent. No more secret societies. Well, no need, Glenn. And and then, of course, there's your application tip of the month to look forward to. And not forgetting your poetic finale. So there's plenty to be going on with then. There is indeed. But first, it's tea break time. Oh, excellent. I'll get the kettle on. So, Glenn, we are on to thinking about 2024 now. Can you believe it? No, I can't. It's scary, isn't it? 
Anyway, more importantly, what tea are you finishing 2023 on? Ah, well, it's a very special tea, Glenn, given to me by a former colleague and all-round good egg, Gwyn Davis, at the recent seminar in Warrington. Which was excellent, I hear. It was, and I believe the tea is from Malawi, where Gwyn originally hails from, and it is an absolute treat, Glenn. It is both naturally... Uh, rich and really sweet if you catch it just right. And he is hopefully going to bring along some Malawian oolong or moolong, as he calls it, to BTME. And so I'm going to bring along a big pot just in case. Very good, Henry. I'm looking forward to a cup of moolong. Yeah, me too. So how about you, Glenn? What have you been drinking? Well, this month I am drinking less water, Henry, ah. because I was overdoing it last month with the more water advice, and I barely had enough time to get any work done. Um, this month I'm hoping to strike a better balance. Yes, the we life balance is very important, Glenn, especially as you get older and if you drink a lot of tea like I do. Anyway, speaking of BTME, Glenn, what have um, Syngenta got lined up this year? Well, uh, we've got Eric, uh, who is mapping out the roadmap for biological solutions at day one of the Continue to Learn conference. That should be excellent. I know some of the stuff he's going to be talking about. Uh, Sean is presenting the dollar spot work we've been doing at the Continue to Learn conference on day two. And I think I'm going to be stood at the side chipping in when I have an opinion. Um, Look out for my good friend Yeston Carpenter from Corehampton Golf Club. Two times Operation Pollinator winner. He'll be talking about his environmental work. That's going to be really good. Um, Anything else? Uh, Well, I'm particularly looking forward to the Spray Operator of the Year awards and hoping for more podcast listener winners. Yes. Well, I would think that that's guaranteed. Well, let's hope so. Um, uh, What about you, Henry? What have ICL got going on? Well, I'm in the fortunate position, Glenn, of working with Andy. (laughs) The great Dr Andy Owen. Yes, the very same. And so this year we will be doing... What's in a soil analysis? Excellent. Uh, We are doing a nutrition masterclass, which was his idea, not mine. Bold. Yes. And we are also speaking about the power of water, Glenn, which is something that you are already acutely aware of. Yeah, if you need any help on that, just let me know. I'm very much in search of the Goldilocks zone at the moment. (laughs) A good title, actually. Yeah, that's one for next year, isn't it? Maybe, yeah. Anyway, uh, so there's, is there anything else of any note? Uh, well, the Syngenta Early Morning Run Club, of course. Keep your eyes uh, yeah. open for that. I, I've not run at all this year. Might give it a go over Christmas, see how I get on. Or I might just be a marshal this year. Um, yes. Are you, are you tempted to join us, Henry? No, no, not at all, Glenn. I am, I am primarily an indoor cyclist these days, Glenn. And so as such... It would be anathema to me. Although, of course, I fully support the event beyond my own participation. 
well, thank you for your contribution, Henry. No problem, Glenn. Uh, so what's on the Syngenta stand this year? Well, we'll be excitedly talking about Acernity at last, which we've been secretly mentioning for years, but is now available for golf. Ah. We'll be talking about our selective herbicide programmes, insect management programmes, and turf advisor, of course. So lots going on on the Syngenta stand. What about on the ICL stand next to us? Well, I think we can look forward to lots of interesting developments so come along for a chat and there will hopefully be some moolong too oh no pressure gwyn so henry january is one of our quieter months agronomically and assuming we kept control of that microdochian patch during october november december and the cold weather arrives like the trends indicate it will then January can be one of the easiest months to deal with. So for me, January is a time to reflect. Ooh, that sounds serious, Glenn. Well, maybe because I want to reflect on sustainability, Henry. Mm. There's a lot of talk about sustainability, isn't there? Mm, Yeah, I think we're all grappling with it, aren't we? The Warrington Seminar was... Uh, touching on that subject area, actually. Um, But it's important, Glenn. So what have you been thinking about? Well, we talk about it a lot internally. We hear it mentioned all the time in all industries. We hear it coupled with the word greenkeeping a lot too. And sustainable greenkeeping. It's a phrase I've probably used in passing many times as well. But I don't think I've ever really been able to pin it down in my head. Um, Now, of course, I completely agree that we need to be more sustainable. But I've never felt that that word or that phrase truly gives me anything to action. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, I, and I'd worry about it because I think the phrase gets hijacked quite a lot to steer an individual part of the agenda. Uh, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I hear some people using sustainable greenkeeping as a phrase to describe, for example, a grass species transition. Or they'll say sustainable greenkeeping and what they mean is they're using less fertiliser. Or they'll say sustainable greenkeeping... And they'll be referencing carbon emissions, which are all incredibly important, but they're only part of the true sustainability picture. And a lot of this is completely out of the control of our listeners and something they can only steer in a direction. Yes. Yeah, I know what you mean, actually. Um, I'm not sure that as an industry, any of us have got a, a clear grasp on what sustainability actually means in practical you know holistic course management terms and of course there's been a great deal of interest and I suppose trepidation recently surrounding the the vote in Europe on the subject of the sustainable use of plant protection products hasn't there? Yeah, uh, we've been keeping a close eye on that, obviously, um, as any decisions there is going to have wide-reaching impact on the many people, golf courses and countries that I work with across Europe. Uh, But whilst I've been watching that going on and I've seen the word sustainability attached to it, I'm not wholly convinced sustainability and pesticide reduction are one and the same thing. No, well, there's there's certainly not a clear-cut distinction between the two. No, the recent discussions in Europe have been about the reduction of the use of pesticides, which is no surprise, as I think we all know reduced access to pesticides is the direction of travel. The sustainable use regs have been in place for years. Um, It was a regulation put in place by European government to reduce pesticide usage. 
and that meant that all countries in the European Union were asked to manage their own reduction of pesticides towards uh, a set of goals, and it was left up to them individually. Okay, and so what was actually being voted on? Well, they were discussing a change, Henry. They were looking at a change to a blanket set of rules so everyone would work to the same rules and regulations. Okay, so as it stands, each country in the EU uh, can still decide what happens to a certain extent and have its own rules and registrations. Which is why France is very different to Germany. And it makes my job very complex, Henry, although I'm not sure anyone other than me cares about the complexities of my day job. Okay, so what were they voting on, ultimately? Okay, so what they were looking to do was create one rule for all. So what was being voted on was one set of rules for the whole European Union. But that wouldn't include the UK? Correct, but it would, of course, include the Republic of Ireland, who are still part of the European Union. Yeah, of course. Okay, well, trying to create a set of rules to work for all countries sounds like a mammoth job, Glenn. It is, Henry, and that's why it's been so difficult to make work. All of these countries have very different climates, agricultural crops, markets and political pressures. I mean, you've only just got to think about the difference between Ireland and France. It's it's huge. The north of France to the south of France, they're all very, very different. And whilst the goal is admirable, though possibly a little simplistic, that of reducing pesticide usage and then making us rely on more ITM strategies... I can't help thinking that is not the same thing as sustainability. Well, it's not, is it? You know, you're right about that, Glenn. Okay, so they were looking into creating a set of rules to harmonise the use of pesticides across the whole of the European Union. Yes, and at first attempt, it seems they couldn't find a proposal that was positively received. But I'm sure they'll continue to work towards something that they feel works. The challenge for us as a sports turf industry in this process is that the sports turf industry is perceived as a bit of a luxury industry. So a reduction in our markets can be a comparatively simple reduction when building policies. But you and I and many of our listeners fully understand the impact of those decisions and how it could really impact on many, many businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, but the vote wasn't passed, was it? And so as it stands, there's no immediate change for the EU. And of course, the UK was never in scope anyway. Yeah, that's right. Which means we remain where we are with each country making their own decisions for now. But it's important that they keep reviewing and looking for an outcome that drives us towards a more responsible use case. Now, the challenge for me, Henry, is pesticide reduction getting caught up in the sustainability phrase. And this is another example where, for me, the word sustainable is a little bit jarring. And whilst doing my bit of January reflection, I saw a brilliant tweet last week from your very own Phil Collinson, who was quoting Keith Lyle, the superintendent at Sun Peaks Golf Club, British Columbia and Canada. And their take was really refreshing and quite simple. Um, When you're thinking about this concept, simply replace the word sustainable with responsible. And that was a bit of a clarity moment for me, Henry. And that made me realise that that's probably been my take on this whole thing all along. Once we simply aim to be responsible, we can truly make changes because then we can start taking responsibility rather than aiming at some loose target that I still can't quite comprehend. Because the move towards true sustainability needs to come from a kind of higher level, maybe government levels drive towards carbon-based, less carbon-based fuels, towards more renewable energy, better public transport, increased insulation in housing. 
our responsibility in our day job at work is responsible greenkeeping. What is the best we can do in our situation? And if we ask ourselves that question every time we make a decision, I believe that's how we make true change. Mm, yeah, very good. So give me some examples, Glenn. Okay, so do we need to put another 20 litres of diesel in the fairway mower for another cut just to make fairways look a bit stripier? Or are we just going out to stripe up again even when we're not taking any grass off or improving the playing surface for the sake of that 20 litres of diesel? Are we managing our irrigation practices properly to the best we are? Are we campaigning for more sustainable water sources with the club and investment? Are we short-term using moisture probes and hand-watering to make the most of the water and resources we've got? Are we using evapotranspiration figures to help us understand what we need? Are we using digital tools to evaluate potential moisture loss? Or are we just flinging the heads up? Are we planning our fungicide program at the beginning of the year to ensure we le use the least possible amount of a product that still keeps our business operating efficiently? Or are we convincing ourselves that we don't need fungicides, not planning, losing control and having to throw loads of fungicides out later in the year when the problem has got away for us? Are we questioning things like our herbicide sprays on fairways? Can we do some spot spraying rather than total sprays? Are we training our operators, our spray operators, to understand best practice stewardship? Or are we just plonking them on a sprayer and saying, go on then, get on with it? Are we taking responsibility for our cultural practices? Are we being responsible with these things and truly questioning our own actions? Yeah, we do need to think about what we do, don't we? You know, every single action. All right, so I can see that you're sort of very passionate about this subject, Glenn, as we, as we all need to be. Uh, what would be your call to arms then? Well, the first thing is to recognise just how far we've moved along that road already, I think. Pesticide usage has reduced dramatically in recent years, probably against a lot of people's will, but that's how legislation drives change. Losing products like carbendazim that had quite a large AI loading and that were applied over large areas of the golf course has had a huge impact in reducing our usage, far bigger than anything we can do with greens. Similarly, with the loss of chlorpyrifos, which was used over large areas too. Now, Without those things, we've had to change our practices, haven't we, in order to maintain good quality surfaces. We've increased nutrition a little. We've lent on brushes for worm casts and change of mowing strategies. We've adjusted our aeration strategies. We're using much safer products. We're understanding insect life cycles better. We're improving our monitoring and our record keeping. We're using digital tools to improve our timing. And we're starting to introduce biological solutions to increase the levels of control when we need it. Now, all of that over the last five years has felt like really hard work. But actually, it's become best practice, hasn't it? And in hindsight, significantly more responsible than applying widespread organophosphates like we were in the past. We're using significantly less insecticides than we did historically, and we're still ensuring we deliver quality playing surfaces that hold our businesses together. Yeah, and I suppose we've seen that you know, already, particularly with our microdokin patch disease management strategies. And we use less fungicides now and, you know, commonly lean on our slow it down 
strategies more and more. Yeah, ICO have invested heavily in those slow it down strategies and we've worked on educating people and understanding the process. And I believe turf managers are providing a better playing surface now than we've ever done historically. Mm. And I really believe we will still continue to improve. But we need to continue to invest in things. We need to continue to invest in things like modeling with digital tools to help us make better decisions based on data. Yeah, turf advisor. Yeah, we need to invest in looking at biological control products. Yeah, and you're working on that too. Yeah, I do. We are. And don't underestimate how long that's going to take. Uh, biological control products have to go through the same registration process as traditional chemistry. Yeah. Definitely go and listen to Eric at BTME if you want to understand that better. Yeah. Um, we also need to educate better. Greenkeeping education needs to step on and turf managers have to take responsibility and recognise their role there too. Okay, so in what way? Well, we know, let's, as an example, we know how important spraying certificates are. Most people recognise they need their PA1, their PA2 and their PA6 before they commence spraying because that's a legal obligation. But we have to recognise we need better amenity-specific training. Yeah, go on. Uh, look, we started the process here with our application tip of the month, which highlights just how much there is to go at. We have never struggled to come up with an application tip of the month. No. We need better education on this. We need education on good stewardship, on reading labels, on what does LERAP mean, sprayer setup, calibration, legislation, legal implications. We could do a whole session on just on sensible decision-making. But these things aren't provided by anyone, Henry. And there doesn't seem to be any desire from the industry to want it either. Education is the key to moving these forward. And education needs to be done in a way that is appealing to the target audience. Yeah, there is always more to do, isn't there? You know, so what else do you think? Okay, so we also need to see investment in cultural management research. We saw from our work last year that I managed to squeeze into some of our trials the impact of aeration on leather jacket populations. And that was one piece of work. I'm really happy to see that prove right or wrong with more investment from other bodies. It's great to see that you at ICL were investing in research in fertilizer technology, wetting agents. We're investing heavily in chemistry, biologicals, digital, and all the other areas. But who is investing in the impact of rolling in dune management, in aeration, in cutting heights? in top dressing there's so much there mm, yeah we do yeah we try and kind of um do that kind of discovery work but there's a lot to do isn't there there's so much to do and and that that's before we get into grass species transitions henry they're so important to look at here too yeah when we start talking about those slow it down strategies that we talk about all the way through microdochium season henry grass species is the biggest one that is going to slow down the development of those diseases but it's a really, really long-term goal, probably beyond the horizon rather than on it for most people. And you and Richard did a grand job of introducing that subject a decade or so ago. And I'm hoping, looking forward to your conversation today to see if you can distill that down even more for us, just to help people take steps in that direction. But in my opinion, transitioning isn't enough. We need a better investment in understanding what the diseases of the future look like. What will the climate of the future look like? And what grass species are we going to need in that situation to help us best? Those situations are going to be tricky. You know, what grass species do we need to produce a putting surface during the disease challenges of the future? 
because we've only got to look at dollar spot to see how quickly things are changing. With the climate changes coming our way, what else will we be dealing with? Because grass species transformation, whilst it's important, it's slow. And it's not going to suddenly make us sustainable. And by the time we get there, I question whether we're going to have the right species to deal with the problem of the day. Now, it's a critical part of the jigsaw. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's only one piece. There's no saying it will help us move away from pesticides. I see fescues in some countries that I support where they're using upwards of 10 fungicide applications just to try and keep that in the place because it's not the right grass species for that situation. Now, some people may deem that as sustainable, but I question it massively and I don't think it's very responsible. No, you're right. I think we do have to think to the future. And also, I completely agree with you that, you know, plant protection products will will always be needed if we're looking to maintain, you know, decent standards for year-round play. But, you know, we can certainly use them much more responsibly. Yes, we can. But the challenge for me there is changing the mindset quick enough, Henry. So we all start committing to this process and we can only do that if we look at it this way. What is the responsible thing to do here today? Is it grass species transformation? Is it gathering data? Is it educating ourselves and our team? Is it better stewardship? Is it looking at better modelling? We're working really hard at it, Henry. The podcast, turf advisor, biological research, continued registration of good products and communicating good stewardship. There is so much going on currently. Look, we know the direction of travel for pesticides is reduction, but I hope it's reduction via responsible use because we know how important they are. It is time for change, but I think we've all got to step up to the plate here. Okay, Glenn. So what can be done uh, to turn us into more responsible greenkeeping teams? Well, I think when we switch it around to responsibility rather than sustainability, that's when we start questioning what we do, Henry. What difference will this operation make to playing quality measurements? Is this a responsible use of diesel or a responsible use of resources? Have we planned our fungicide applications to minimise them and get the best out of them? Do we genuinely value stewardship and best practice? Are we being responsible? This is the first step towards that foggy goal that's currently called sustainability. Yeah, plenty to think about, Glenn. Okay, Glenn, on the subject of sward species composition change, we actually had Richard turn up in the nick of time at the end of our last episode, didn't we? Thank goodness that's over. Indeed. And so myself and Richard sat down for a long chat on the subject, just to get his take on things, really. Um, So do you want to hear how it went? Of course I do. I'm going to go get myself a cuppa. And so here we are with Richard Windows from the RNA, who has come along for a cuppa and an agronomic chat and to hopefully rescue my latest attempt to explain the disturbance theory. So thanks for coming along, Richard. My pleasure, Henry, but I'm not sure it needed rescuing. 
I think you and Glenn have been doing a great job. Uh, we were in the fortune teller's tent, Richard, and I had just had my tea leaves read. Oh, yeah. Fair point. <laughs> OK, so for those who don't know you, Richard, uh, we should probably do some introductions. You are now the head of sustainable agronomy for the RNA championship venues. Uh, but I know you, don't I, from our days when we were... SDRI agronomists. Absolutely right, Henry. Yes, and, th and that was a time when we had something to say on the subject of the sward species development of golf greens, which we then called the disturbance theory. We did. So this is the subject that we want to discuss now, not necessarily under that banner. So before we begin, how about I stop talking and you introduce yourself properly and give us an idea of your agronomic backstory. No problem. Where do I start? I think it all stems from where I was a young lad growing up in Newcastle. I really like growing things. Me and me dad spent ages in the garden. And I love mowing the lawn with me dad's key start at comb. And when I wasn't growing things, I loved playing sport. Cricket, rugby and golf. Yeah. My mum and dad were both really good golfers. And so, I think, with a love of plants and sports, it was probably no surprise that I became interested in sports turf and how playing surfaces were prepared. I really knew that's what I wanted to do, and I just needed to find a way of doing it. OK, so essentially, uh, you followed your interest, didn't you, Richard, from an early age? Yeah, absolutely. After studying from a degree in plant science, I did some hands-on cricket groundsman stuff in Newcastle and Australia at the WACA which was pretty cool. Ooh, very good. Then I found out about the SGI, and there were actually people called turf grass agronomists. Mm. So I became a student subscriber to the SGI and was always really excited when the bulletin came through the letterbox. And the SGI used to have open days back then, and I remember going over to one from Sheffield University. Yeah. And after a morning on the trials grounds, I thought, that's the job for me. Because SGI recruiting at the time, I managed to get a job as a trainee agronomist working under Steve Isaac up in Scotland. Yeah. So I really have to thank Steve for getting me into this great career. And I've been an agronomist ever since, nearly 25 years now. Yes. That's, uh, yeah, 25 years. But, you know, knowing you, Richard, it feels to me that it was kind of inevitable that you would fall into this role. And I can't really imagine you doing anything else. And... Yeah, actually, I, I, I think we both really appreciate just how lucky we've been with our careers. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great job. You really do have to pinch yourself sometimes. We're so lucky to work with so many great people. Obviously, you've been one of them, Henry. Well, thank you, Richard. OK. <laughs> right, I'll pass over the five pounds there. Um, anyway, so... We both joined the SDRI around the same time, didn't we? And um, so... We were pretty much thrown into into it all together, weren't we? We absolutely were. And there were a few others joining at the same time. So it was a really interesting time with the new intake joining quite an established team. Yes. And so we were we were all learning how to be agronomists and do our visits and give our agronomic advice, you know, in reports and, and etc. But also, there was quite a lot we had to do as SDRI agronomists. You know, we also had to do presentations and help deliver training courses. And also, 
it was fairly compulsory, I think, to write articles for the bulletin. So there was plenty to be getting our teeth into. Yeah, it was a really great time. And I think we were so strongly motivated to make a positive change and hopefully make a difference or contribution for the good of the sport. Yeah, I think we were quite idealistic at that time. It was a really good time, wasn't it? And and I remember your first classic article, uh, which was entitled Banish Basil, uh, which was all about, yes, which was all about keeping foxes away from bowling greens. And it's still my favourite article title after all these years. And, you know, I try my best with those. And so in those early days, we were definitely having a lot of fun. We were learning our trade. And also we began collaborating, didn't we, fairly early on. And, you know, well, actually things moved along quite quickly after that, didn't they? Yeah, they really did. We were definitely of the same same mind back then, like kindred spirits. I think we still are, of course. Yes, I do too. But looking back on it, Richard, the agronomy of the day, it was a bit weird, wasn't it? It it kind of felt very much like a handed down version from the 70s and 80s, which was a good grounding. um, But it also felt a little bit set in its ways, didn't it? Yeah, maybe a bit old school. We used to joke about tweed jacket agronomy, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. But they were good agronomists, weren't they? And, you know, that we were learning from. But the advice at the time seemed a little bit out of place, didn't it? Or, or not progressing at the pace that the industry was at that time. Because it was quite sort of... There was lots going on back in the early 2000s, wasn't there? Yeah, there were loads of developments. If you think about with machinery, yeah. maintenance techniques, yeah. as well as input technologies. But sword species wasn't keeping up. No. And your medagrass dominated greens regardless of course type. Yes, yes, it did. And I think that that was actually, that was almost accepted, you know, by everyone, apart from Alistair, I think. And also, it was kind of, I think the general attitude was that there was nothing that could be done about it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and so right from the start, uh, when we were talking about how we should be thinking about things as agronomists, you know, especially with things like the grass types, uh, you, I remember, would bring up the topic of comparative plant ecology, which I hadn't really come across before. Yep, that's right. I'd studied it as part of my plant science degree at Sheffield. I found it really interesting, and it properly resonated with me. Yes. So when we would talk about managing sword species composition... Yeah, which is obviously compulsory for, for young idealistic agronomists. Of course. I'd come at it from the understanding that the composition of the plants all around us is a reflection of the environmental pressures being imposed. Mm. My plant science degree really opened up my eyes and my understanding. I always remember you saying that the job of a good agronomist is to help improve the understanding of the situation. That's also really stuck with me. Anyway, the, the, the penny finally dropped on a field trip when we visited this valley in the peaks. The north-facing slope had totally different species to the south. Yeah. Because of the different environmental conditions imposed, shade and drought pressure in this instance. And, so Henry, we started to talk about this in relation to turf. Yes, we did. And so, actually, we had a new Bible, didn't we, called Comparative Plant Ecology, which was like this massive textbook 
by um, Professor Philip Grime, which our colleague, uh, a resident ecologist um, at the time, Bob Taylor, because, you know, obviously he was an ecologist. He actually studied under Philip Grime as well, didn't he? And um, he had that, he had the textbook on his shelf, didn't he, in his office? Yes, and we got very excited. We opened it up and there they were, the diagrams of the, each of the major turf grass species were categorised differently yeah. in the book in terms of their nature. Mm. They were all there and it provided great clarity when approaching sword species change so we started following that route to see what it meant for our advice. Yes, we did. It was kind of like it was it was kind of like a sort of seismic shift, wasn't it? But well, it was, yeah. Yeah. And so as a result of kind of just thinking about things in a slightly different way, we started to draw different conclusions and think very differently than the than the agronomy that we've been taught. Yep. The rhetoric was that annual medagrass was all about feed and water. But we were thinking that it was there because it thrived under disturbance pressure, while the bents and fescues didn't like much of that, but they could tolerate a bit more stress. And so, rather than thinking just in terms of restricting feed and water... Yeah, imposing stress was the order of the day, wasn't it? Yeah, we thought that to encourage those better grass types, the bents and fescues, yeah. we needed to think more broadly about the environment that we were creating as a whole and be conscious of our maintenance as a way of setting the environment. Yes, that's right. You know, because as greenkeepers or turf managers, you know, with our maintenance operations, you know, we actually have lots of different ways that we can exert environmental pressures. Pretty much everything that we do has an impact on the environment in its own way. Yes, and we could adjust them to set a slightly different balance from the environment that was favouring the annual meadowgrass to one that suited the bents and or the fescues. Yeah. And the diagrams showed us that one of the things that we needed to do was to ease up on the disturbance pressure. Things like mowing intensity and verticutting being a big part of the story. Yeah. It was a completely different approach than trying to starve or drought out the annual meadowgrass, which, you know... We'd all experienced never ended that well anyway. No, and we started writing and talking about greenkeeping from that ecological perspective quite early on, actually. But we really went for it in 2006 when the first sustainability debate was happening and sward composition of golf greens was the focus of the discussion. Yes, and it was, it was actually at that time, because we've been thinking about it for... Uh, the first article on this subject went out in 2002, but it kind of fell flat on its face at that point. But in 2006, we kind of put out a load more articles, didn't we? And we called it, at that point, The Disturbance. Theory. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> give it a grand note, because it sounded a lot better than it's not all about stress, you know, theory. Yes, and we went off on our agronomic campaign about it for about three to four years. Yeah. We were working it out as we went along yeah. and having a load of fun on the way. Yeah, yeah. You've described the West in your previous episodes. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun time. But in the end, it all ran out of steam, didn't it? And we moved on. And as I've mentioned before, I think the winner of the last sustainability debate was actually playing quality, quite rightly. And so we moved our focus on to that. Yes, we did. 
because even though performance was always at the heart of the disturbatory and sword species composition, yes. we needed to be able to demonstrate progress without a compromise on performance. Yeah. And to do that, we needed to bring in methods of measurement to help validate and guide the process. Yes. So we kind of moved on from the disturbatory and concentrated our focus on measuring plane performance and the agronomic factors that controlled them. We did. Yeah, and it felt like we were starting from scratch again. We started doing visits with stint meters, clegg hammers, moisture probes, the trueness meter, and adopting things like organic matter testing all became a standard part of ergonomy visits. Yes. Fair play to SDRI at the time because they really went with it and invested in the tools, and that felt like the time when we really broke free from the old style of agronomy. Yeah, yeah, it did. And, you know, so we... So we... We ran with a more of a like a data driven agronomy, didn't we, from about two thousand and nine on onwards, which was way better than the old sort of more subjective style, which well, the reason why we changed is because it wasn't really targeted at all. Yep. The data really drove progress. Yeah. From then on, we could measure agronomic or performance improvements in response to our maintenance and identify where further action was required. It was really exciting stuff. Yeah, it was good. And we introduced the same process into greenkeeping and agronomy for championship setup, with the the RNA adopting this approach for the first time at the 2010 Open at St Andrews. Yes, yes, I remember that, and it was it was great. Yeah, we started making progress, I think, and targeting our advice. But after about three years of delivering that in 2012, I then left the SDRI, didn't I, to do what I'm doing now? You did. But I carried on for a few more years before I left to do what I'm doing now. Yes, that's right, you did. And now uh, you and Adam are, are working full-time for the RNA, supporting the successful delivery of all their championships. We are, but it's still down-to-earth, data-driven agronomy when it comes down to it. Yes. The difference now, we really understand what the data is telling us and how to use it to guide our advice. Very good. Okay. And so that is an interesting, very interesting agronomic backstory. But, you know, after all the preamble, Richard, what I really want to know is, because you've stayed in agronomy all this time, what I want to know is what are your thoughts now on sword species development after nearly 25 years of thinking about it and giving advice on it. I've carried on just the same, Henry. I think the same and I follow the data. Because when we started to gather data, it's apparent that fine grass-dominated greens perform better. Yeah. They are more consistent, less volatile, and simply less runnable. Yes. As an agronomist, grass species composition cannot be ignored. Good sword composition is the absolute cornerstone for consistent year-round performance of golf greens. Yeah. And so I can't talk about improving the performance and sustainability of the greens without discussing the sword species composition. Yeah, so it is still, after all these years, Richard, very much at the top of your agronomic agenda. Yes, still absolutely top of the agenda. And I suppose that is because in your current role especially, you know, you're looking to the future, aren't you? Yep. It's at the forefront of our minds at the RNA. For golf to be thriving in 50 years' time, we need enjoyable and sustainable golf courses. Things like reducing our carbon emissions is vital, 
and so are things like being efficient with our fertiliser and water inputs. But so is performance. Not just for championship golf, but for everyone. Good playing performance, sustainability, enjoyment and participation are all intrinsically linked. And grass composition is undoubtedly a key component of achieving all these objectives. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it is a part of it, isn't it? It's not... It's not everything, but it's a part of it, isn't it? And so in your current role, you have, you know, you're actually you're thinking, you know, way bigger things now, aren't you? Yep. As you said in the introduction, my job title is Head of Sustainable Agronomy for the Championship Venues, and I work as part of the Sustainable Golf section of the RNA. and all of us need to be thinking about the future. Yeah. My day-to-day job with Adam is to help deliver sustainable and environmentally positive world-class playing conditions for RNA Championship golf courses. Yeah. We have about 60 to 65 venues we visit each year, covering all the Open and AIG Women's Open venues, all the qualifying courses, plus amateur championships and the various matches, such as Walker Cup. Yeah. With loads to occupy us, but good Data-driven agronomy is the heart of what we do. Mm. We're really proud that all our open venues, for example, are fine grass dominant. Some brown top bent, some fescue, some are blend, the dominant grass being a reflection of the pressures being imposed. And all these courses follow what we might call the disturbance theory principles. Although, in reality, it's just sound agronomy. Much of it is taking the right action at the right time and understanding what pressures we can control and can impose on the turf to allow the desired species to develop. Yes, that is what it's all about. Um, and, uh, you know, you talk about the top venues. They haven't always been fine grass dominant, have they? No, far from it sometimes. But we know what to do and we work closely with our venues to support them through this process of sword species change. Yeah. It's been a big part of my career, along with Adam, Alistair. Paul, Simon and Gordon to work with our clubs and venues to move their greens forward in terms of their performance and that includes grass types. Yeah, It's our job as agronomists to ensure we produce enjoyable and sustainable playing surfaces. Yes. We start with phase one where organic matter reduction is the key. Working to targets and focusing our efforts using loss on ignition tests to guide the process. Yeah. As well as drainage reconstruction if needed. We start by setting a good agronomic foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And, th- and of course, that's the same for every club, isn't it? Not just sort of championship venues. Yep, there's no getting away from it. The quicker we do it, the better. And we should say that tree removal is also really important at this stage if they are limiting light and airflow. Yeah, and that always needs sort of careful sort of management because obviously it's it's a you know it's an important subject. So so on that point, talking about sort of wider issues, do you think that a sustainable course in the future will you know, look different than the courses of today. Yeah, it's something that we're really thinking and talking about a lot as a, as a team. Yeah. I think what our conclusion is, we will need to move the tree line further away from the playing areas. Yeah. So, of course, we'll need to consider our tree management plans. Yeah. And, of course, to do that, we will need to use golf course ecologists who can provide guidance and support us through this area. The fundamental trees and fine turf really don't mix. No. And the trees, you know, the encroachment just just happens sort of without anyone noticing as well, doesn't it? So you've just got to sort of, you know, 
maintain a, a sustainable situation, don't we, environmentally? Yeah, and, and but also I should say that during throughout your career, you've always looked after quite a balanced portfolio, haven't you, haven't you, of golf course types? You're not just focused on the championship courses or links courses, are you? Yeah, absolutely. All styles, of course, different levels of resourcing and capabilities. It's only in recent years that I've focused on championship work. But even with our championship portfolio, that covers all course types across all geographical areas of the UK and Ireland. We're just not working with Lynx courses all the time now. No, okay. So we've been saying in earlier episodes that sword species transformation is all about working through distinct phases of management. Yes, your objectives change as you work through the four phases and so your management has to adjust to reflect that. Yes. I don't believe there is a single style of greenkeeping that gets you through. I think you have to change your game throughout the process, and as agronomists, we help you guide through that process. Okay, right, good. So, yeah, we've been... Th- <laughs> I've, I've laboured through these points quite, you know, for... Um, yeah, quite painfully at times in the previous episodes. So, so look, let's try and sort of focus on phase one. What are the the keys, do you think, Richard, to getting through phase one as quickly as possible? Well, things are a lot better these days than back in your day, Henry. Just wondering, <laughs> have you still got your auger? Ah, well, no. No, I don't, actually. I loved that auger. It's a good one. I think I lent it to someone a few years back, and, and of course, that was the last I saw of it. But what, what a shame. Well, anyway, yeah. well, maintenance machinery has really improved since those early days of the disturbance series, and this all helps us get through phase one quicker and more crucially with less disruption to golf. Okay. There's things like air injection. and Sand injection aeration are now available with the latter being really helpful at fully integrating sand into the soil profile with minimal surface impact. Yeah. You think now aeration equipment is so much better, faster and less disruptive. Yeah. It just helps getting the job done quicker and easier. Yeah. And we use organic matter testing, which we never had during those early days of disturbance theory. Yeah, that only came when we started measuring performance. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And and that really helps us focus our attention and drive progress towards our defined target levels. Yeah. Around 4 to 6% at 0 to 20 millimetres, depending upon the local climate. Okay. Organic matter testing has been a massive help and brings everyone on board without argument or debate. Yes. And that was a key feature for me, really. You know, when you had the figures, you had the target ranges, you know, people couldn't argue with it, could they? We used to have that debate. How much thatch is too much thatch? Yeah. Organic matter testing took that debate away. Yeah, it did. Then it allowed a green-specific approach, allowing harder work to on some surfaces or some greens than others. And even now, with that, it's moved on again further. With additional lab testing, such as the GGI testing carried out by Sharon and her team at ETL. Yeah, and that is actually new to me and an interesting development. I, I've written it down. Hang on. Uh, it stands for GGHI, stands for Golf Green Health Indexing Service, which uh, ETL do. And that's interesting because it looks at the soil physical properties too, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting. We use that as part of our, our routine work at all our open venues and AIG Women's Open Venues. And the process is you take in TAC cores, uh, are taken from two or three indicator greens. They're taken for physical performance analysis. 
both hydraulic conductivity and porosity and bulk density. Yeah. It just provides a further layer of understanding of how that soil profile is performing and, in disturbance theory terms, when we can move on from phase one. Yeah. It really does give us evidence to allow things to be left alone with confidence. Yeah. But still, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still in phase one. The aim during phase one is to get out of it as quickly as possible with minimum disruption to golf. Okay. So in general terms then, what would you say might be the annual level of top dressing that we might be needing to budget for in our concerted effort to get through phase one? Yep. Real good question. Actual amounts are difficult to define and are site-specific, but we do need to be driven and guided by organic matter numbers. Yes. If, we say, during phase one, we're aiming to move to 4 to 6% in the top 40 millimetres of the soil profile. Generally, to achieve this, we'll need over 150 tonnes per hectare per year, incorporated into the target area for three to four years, I think. Yeah, so that is, you know, and that's just a fact, isn't it? You know, if you're sort of you know, having to drive down those organic matter contents. At the moment, there's no real alternative than a lot of top dressing. Yeah, I think, and that's a, a, a real good starting point, but we've also got to think about, in addition to sanding, think about or being mindful of the biological function of the soil profile yeah. to ensure good natural breakdown. So we're thinking about additional aeration, careful management of irrigation and nutrient inputs, we don't want to be accumulating organic matter as fast as we're reducing it. No. So, and it's a, a chat about wider agronomy. It's looking at all areas or layers, if you like. But we'll come back to that later in our chat, I'm sure. Okay. What I'm saying at this stage is we can't just think of organic matter reduction in isolation. It's part of the whole strategy where each site is different in terms of its situation and capabilities. And so our job was to try and come up with a workable plan. Okay. And so, you know, with that amount of top dressing going on, uh, what might uh, uh, nutritional inputs be um, in general terms in phase one, you know, to support um, and recover through that level of top dressing? The key here is to provide growth, optimum recovery. It's simple. Yes. Plan your nutritional inputs around renovation operations and keep growth strong to aid rapid recovery and get the playing surfaces back as quickly as possible. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough, actually. I mean, it's kind of like it's, it could be different for, for anyone, couldn't it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to put a number on it, and maybe we shouldn't. Um, but, you know, I suppose if I had to, I'd say, it would be, I don't know what it would be, 120 to 160 kilograms of event? I don't know. At ICL, you know, our team, we just try to work around... You know, an annual nitrogen budget that's based on the actual level of work required, but also taking into account past experiences. And, of course, you know, I think the key really is also to be, you know, really efficient with the delivery of, of nutrition and targeted with its phasing. Um, and, yeah, just like you said, really, you know, just aiming to get that really concise response that allows you to sort of, you know, recover through the top dressing without building organic matter as a result. You know, it, during phase one, we're just trying to create enough of a response to generate recovery, maintain plant health, but without overdoing it. Okay, so, 
Yeah, and your final number would be sort of, you know, dependent on, you know, the scale of your agronomic effort. Yeah, I think that's put perfectly. You need a plan, but you just need to adjust depending on the conditions of your site and prevailing weather conditions. If we're thinking about sort of our other agronomic controls, uh, what about careful irrigation management? during phase one what about our percentage soil moisture contents you know generally what do you think we should be targeting you know bearing in mind that we're dealing with an annual wetter grass dominated sward that in phase one is receiving a lot of top dressing and a lot of attention at this stage yeah i think to maintain plant health and good growth but not stifle the breakdown of organic matter at this stage, I think we're aiming for that 25% mark. Yeah. We want to set a reasonable balance, but really don't want that much stress entering the game. No, we don't. And so in phase one, essentially we've got other things going on. We've got the soil profile and surrounding environment and maybe underlying draining you know, to sort out. And so we really don't mind how we go about preparing the surfaces um, because our focus is on that foundation. And so this kind of always surprised people when I was doing my advice because they were always in phase one. But you, you, you'd never really talk about, you know, that idea of easing up on the, on the disturbance pressure just yet because it's kind of like that's not what your objective is in phase one. But within reason, I think, remember, if, you, if you're cutting too low, yeah. we're probably tying ourselves to increased irrigation and fertiliser inputs. Yeah. There's always a balance, fine balance to be struck, yeah. which is why... Keep a close eye on those key indicators of performance, growth, health, growth degree days, clip yield, and all those good things. It's so core specific. There's plenty we can do to guide the process properly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's loads more sort of uh, things that we can look at now, isn't there? And and sort of routine data collection, day-to-day data collection is now commonplace, isn't it? You know, how, and, you know, the majority of golf courses, I would think, are sort of doing it to a certain degree. Yeah, it's so much part of the language now, isn't it? Yeah. And that information is so important for me as a, as a visiting agronomist. But the key, it's got to be gathered correctly in a way that we can confidently use. Yes. We need good, accurate data. Yes, we do. But, you know, during phase one, with our own agronomist measurement tools, we can also demonstrate progress too can't we um and highlight if things need tweaking yeah the clegg hammer and the moisture probe so useful in that regard especially in phase one when we're trying to create firmer and drier surfaces yes that data keeps everyone engaged and demonstrates progress or the need for more work perhaps on in individual greens yes that's right yeah yeah, it is. It is. We, we, you do start looking sort of to take out that variability, don't you? So it's clear that in phase one, it's not without its issues, is it? It's a tough phase to get through, but we can target what we need to do to get that foundation in place. You know, the soil organic matter content, the drainage, the tree management, and your sort of GGHI testing. But don't forget, as Glenn was saying in previous episodes, we also see some architectural issues, like greens being too small in in relation to the volume of play. Insufficient hole locations mean we can't spread where. Sometimes, even the business model is restrictive, like loading the course with winter play. Yes. These bigger issues are sometimes trickier to overcome, but they need to be addressed before we can move out of phase one. 
Yes, very good point. Actually, there's there, there's there's some maybe some structural issues or political issues that need to be addressed as well. And of course, that is, yeah, it's always a big part of the agronomist's role as well. You know, to support a club through these sort of tricky times. Okay, so what sort of timelines would you be aiming at if we were looking to dig ourselves out of a sticky phase one? Great question. It would depend on the situation and level of resourcing and commitment of the particular club or venue. Yeah. But ideally, between three and five years. Okay. Perhaps a little bit longer if you've got some bigger issues like tree management or architectural issues to address. Yeah, yeah, but the point is that the greens get better, you know, right from the start. It's not five years of agony, is it? No, you see, rapid progress. Everyone will notice it with more consistent performance, better year-round playability, and see the benefits of creating good foundation for driving further improvements. Yeah. You hear these sort of things in the car park. Things like, the greens have never been better. Ah. There's no... There's no standing water. They release a ball after impact. Yeah. They aren't closed all winter. Yes. Our fungicide bill was reduced. Yeah. All of this anecdotal stuff in the car park is great, but we know we are making progress because the numbers are telling us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's easy to be seduced by feedback, isn't it? But you've got to stick to the numbers. But at this stage... You know, we haven't actually really been focusing on the developments of the grass types, have we? You know, this is just back to basics. Fundamental agronomy, isn't it? Yeah, there's no doubt we all agree that everyone needs to complete phase one. Yeah. Then, as you said, it's not compulsory to carry on through the phases to properly embark on the process of sword species change. But if you've generally got to the end of phase one, you might as well carry on with the rest of it. It does get easier from here. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? You know, I think you're finding that on some of your visits, aren't you? When people sort of like are working really hard with phase one maintenance and actually you're just kind of wondering why. <laughs> it's kind of like, look, you can back off now. It's fine. Um, okay, so before we move on, you know, to phase two or through the remaining uh, process, you know, there's a couple of things, I, we, you know, we do need to stop with and talk about. Um uh, first of all, is people moving on to phase two management before phase one is properly finished? Uh, you know, meaning that the soil species development doesn't proceed as we would hope. Yeah, that used to be really common before we were fully clear on the process and our, and, and our advice. Yes. There's no point in being too hasty because yes. things won't progress in the way we want without a good foundation in place. Yep, we just need to be honest about it, don't we, and be guided by our targets. Yep, it's important to get everything in place. Organic matter targets, drainage rates, architecture, the surrounding environment. Okay. And secondly, and I've already mentioned this actually, and you're seeing this quite a bit these days when you visit new, new venues, is that whole thing of... You know, clubs continuing on with intensive phase one management when they don't really need to. And that is holding back the sword species development as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's been really interesting because clearly the organic matter targeting really works to help guide good agronomic progress. But it also tells us when it's time to move on. Yes. At this stage, that's when we we roll out the, the GGI testing. To illustrate, the soil profile is now fully functioning because, 
At this stage, it's now time to back off with the intensive approach of phase one and maintain your foundation with, with lower inputs. The greens are firmer and drier, so we can be less aggressive with surface preparations while maintaining the same level of playing performance. Yeah. The soil profile doesn't need as much top dressing to keep it in target, and so they don't need as much fertilizer. Moving on from phase one is a time of rebalancing to a newer and less intensive maintenance program. Yeah. It's when the data collection or routine data collection tells us the story and shows us that we can back off. Monitoring playing qualities through this process will show you that you can maintain the same level of performance by doing less. I reckon, perhaps this is where we went wrong in the early days. Yeah. We did phase one, but we continue with intensive greenkeeping and the greens got faster and faster. Yeah, it's funny that I think sort of people sort of almost like took their eye off the objective when, you know, when the performance of the greens got better. It's almost like, you know, that became the sole aim. You know, it's almost like people forgot what, yeah, what we were trying right. to do here. Yeah. And it took a bit of bit of time, I suppose, but then you, you think about sustainable greenkeeping is doing yeah. is about doing as little as possible whilst maintaining yeah. optimum performance. So what is optimal performance, Richard? Well, it's a balance of green speed, ball roll quality, surface firmness. It's working with your agronomist um to define define those specific targets. It will be course-specific, dependent upon your business model, size of greens, exposure of greens, all these sort of things. But I think once you've done that, you maintain that level of performance rather than exceeding it. Once you do that, this is when you start to see the fine grasses ingressing, perhaps in areas of low disturbance, backs of greens, areas that, that aren't on direct traffic routes, green edges, tops of slopes. This is the exciting time when you really start to see sword species change. Yeah, and that's what Glenn was saying, actually. He, he was saying he saw that, 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 that when he just uh, adjusted things slightly, the change actually happened quite quickly. Yeah, and no, I think this is really where it gets really, really cool because nature is telling you when to move on. Mm. You just need to open your eyes to it sometimes. And now, at this stage, the agronomist goes back into salesman mode by selling the picture of the future. We need your crystal ball back, Henry, here, such as reduced vulnerability, greater resilience, consistent performance. These are examples of successful conversions. Why wouldn't you be wanting that from your playing surfaces? Yeah, yeah, things get better, don't they? And, of course, that's the reason why you're here, Richard, to be in salesman mode. And in phase two, moving on, when we do agree to move on, that's when we start playing with the pressures and rebalancing our maintenance as you were saying to reduce the level of disturbance pressure you know thinking about you know mowing verticutting brushing top dressing they all need to be considered as we move on because now that we've set the foundation we're looking to allow the desired grasses a chance to establish you know either the existing stuff that's there that glenn was seeing but actually, mainly, I think, you know, we try and do this with overseeding to get sort of newer, better grass types in there. And and the key to it all during this rebalance phase two is always hitting your performance targets. You know, it's still the most important point. You know, this isn't grass type development for its own sake. This is trying to make your greens better in every way and so you have to hit your performance targets just with 
a slightly relaxed and less intensive maintenance program. And the reason why it really has to back off is because now is a time of overseeding. And, you know, we need to create an environment that allows new seedlings a chance to establish. Yep, absolutely. We need to be nurturing the seedlings to establishment. And over the years, I've seen some amazing conversions, but everything needs to be in place and fully considered. And again, we're coming back to the to the layers of agronomy. Yeah. Everything from the timing of the seeding, the size of the hole, yes. working the seed into the hole, not on the surface, refinement before and after the seeding operation, yes. nutrition before and after, timing of herbicide applications, yeah. even things like wetting agents, where you're siting your hole locations, yes. potential cycles of rest, all need to be considered for a successful overseeding program. Yes. But it's also a question of numbers, and I think that's kind of what, what we've learned certainly in, in recent years. Yes. Progress will undoubtedly be slow with one or two overseeding operations a year. Try three or four, or even five or six. Ah. That's where you start to see really rapid change. Okay. So we as an agronomist, we're back in sales mode again, Henry, but this time we're focusing our efforts on the seed budget. Well, you know, hopefully what we're doing there, Richard, is it's just a rebalancing, isn't it? Um, we, we, You know, we shouldn't be spending as much on top dressing. So now we need to reallocate our budget, you know, focusing on seeding. Yeah, that's right. But I think, you know, even if you can't afford those five or six operations a year, you can still make a change. But you've just got to accept it'll be a, it'll be a slower process. Yeah, but you can relax then and hopefully just let you... Your, your plan unfold but rather than obsessing about progress with grass ties again we just need to work hard under this sort of newer relaxed maintenance um to keep the greens in their performance targets and and so everyone will be happy yeah absolutely we've got better technology now that allows us to do the seeding without the golfers noticing yeah i thought glenn's point a couple of episodes ago about not telling anyone or making a massive deal out of it was reasonable because we don't want that to become a distraction yeah always did didn't it i think that's our, i think that's that we you know guilty as charged on that that we would sort of like probably in our enthusiasm raise the sort of subject of sword species composition change and and evangelize about how it how it might be done and it just or it, it does become a distraction this is should you know the conversation should be look we're trying to make the greens better but we're constantly working to um, hitting your performance targets that's what it is yeah absolutely yeah okay so what what if we're thinking about on the quiet without telling everyone anyone uh if we're thinking about developing the grasses what species do we decide upon do you reckon yeah real good point i think that all depends on the style of the course as well as the local climate conditions think about soil ph the size of the greens the levels of play the exposure to to wind the water quality what's going well like, look in the surrounds, look in the fairways. These swords are telling us a story. Yeah. But but mostly, we're talking about slender creeping or chewings fescues or brown top bent or a, a blend of both of them. I think our blends are where our greens are absolutely at their best in terms of year-round performance, consistency, yeah. reduced volatility. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bring in the sort of relative strengths of different 
species. And you'd be amazed, actually, you know, because we do, you know, being being a supplier of fertilizers, you know, part of our service does involve doing soil testing, and we don't read too much into it. But it's amazing how much soil pH, you know, does become a really significant agronomic factor, especially when you are considering things like grass types. There's lots to consider. There's sort of you know, fundamental things like soil pH always sort of um, rear their head at this stage. You know, we're actually, we see sort of creeping bent grass being used more and more as the sort of varieties in, uh, improve. So there's lots of there's lots of different options to discuss. Lots of seed specialists out there as well. It's not just straightforward bent fescue decision, is it? You have to take quite a lot into account. And you so, so that's where your agronomist comes in, Richard. There you go. In Correct. salesman mode. That's our job. Yes, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so as an agronomist, what is your preferred method of overseeding then? Oh, it's changed so so much over the over the past few years as, as new technology comes in and each course manager has the favourites. Yeah. I think again I've seen great results with disc seeding, dimple seeding, the plant pot method. Yeah. I think Fundamentally, it comes down to each individual and how the operation could be integrated into the golfing schedule. Yes. The key is that you must invest into the seed, the process of placement, and then nurture to establishment while maintaining desirable playing performance. Yes. That whole process is the nitty-gritty of agronomy. Yeah. There's nothing better than putting a phase two program together and watching progress. Yeah. It might be slow initially, but there definitely comes a tipping point and bang, you see a change. Yeah. More so with, with bent conversions, the slow burners, but you see this big change over a fairly short period of time. Yeah, yeah, it can do. Things do just fall into place sometimes, don't they? And I think you're right there, actually. You know, it's it's again, it's not prescriptive, is it? You have to sort of you know, work hard to sort of set that right balance and really twig what works for you, don't you? And then sort of it's like an unlocking of the situation when, when you get that right okay so right good very good but phase two is not just about the seed, seeding method is it i think sometimes people do forget this that we you know we've got to think about you know the seedlings as well yeah you've really got to lay off the damage but don't forget on maintaining or retaining playing performance yeah but as we said earlier we're maintaining our targets. We're not looking to exceed them. Yes, that's right. I think that is right. And I think that's, you know, and you've got to be confident with that. You know, the, 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 your targets that you've set mean that everyone is going to be happy with your greens. And that just allows you to know what the rules of the game are. And then you can sort of play with your maintenance operations within those rules, can't you? And it sort of ease back, you know, especially during times of seedling sort of establishment but while still sort of hitting your targets. Okay, so what do you recommend, if we're talking about playing quality targets, what do you recommend then in phase two as those kind of key sort of methods of maintaining our playing qualities? This is the real nitty-gritty of agronomy in in the green sheds. I think our starting point is to obviously limit damage. Things like rolling, if we can limit rolling and perhaps even take it out of the equation, it's funny, but right in the early days of, of the disturbance we hadn't really considered rolling as a as a damaging pressure. But certainly in seedling stage, or seedling seem to be very, very vulnerable to the to the crushing yeah. action of the roller. You add a bit of sand into that process of rolling, it's even more damaging. I kind of liken it to 
aggressive exfoliation of your skin, Henry. Yeah, no, honestly, Richard, we did, we, you know, we did underestimate that aspect to it all. Yeah, didn't we, we definitely did. Um, yeah. Around that seeding, uh, especially, you know, because we were sort of saying, just shift your maintenance away from mowing and verticutting into increased levels of rolling and top dressing. And actually, you know, at a time of intensive seeding, that is not the best thing that you could be doing. It might come back later on when you've kind of changed the emphasis again, but those seedlings are sensitive to it, aren't they? They're very sensitive. But in the end, you've got to, you've got to consider the, the obvious things like you're relaxing, you're verticutting, yep. grooming and, and brushing. But you've got to maintain those plane qualities, so you consider those before the seeding process. Yes. Work to a fine texture so it can be relaxed after seeding, yeah. but ball wall quality can be maintained while those seedlings are, are, are establishing. Uh. Think about raising cutting heights, but to be honest, assuming you adopt sensible mowing heights, I don't think this is as important as relaxing, ro- rolling, vertically cutting, and, and grooming. Okay. Modern growth regulators can keep growth quiet, and you can, of course, consider the timing to avoid regulating the new seedlings while they're trying to establish within within the sward. Yes. Then even small stuff that you perhaps you wouldn't consider, like wetting agent applications. These can even set back seedling establishment. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, once you do get into the nitty gritty of things, you know, it, you realise that actually you, you have to be you know, so considerate or so sensitive about those seedlings. You know, so during phase two, which is the overseeding phase, we are sort of working around those seeding operations, aren't we, in every way, you know, and and really having to think about uh, the timing of, of, of all our operations. There is some good research. I really take your point about plant growth regulators and not sort of applying them you know, when uh, possibly when the seedling's establishing. But there's some good research to show that, you know, the application of Prima Max five days before overseeding really helps increase the level of establishment. So that can be built in. It's just an example of just getting that timing right, isn't it? You know, five days, um, you know, or a week here or there can just make a massive difference in terms of your success or the speed at which you you know travel through phase two do we need to overseed all all the greens each time you know how should we be thinking richard of our overseeding operations some got 18 greens on a golf course plus putting green plus short game area some greens may need more improvements than others and might be in different stages of development yeah again with successful conversions you see more focus into botanically weaker surfaces I've seen it when botanically good greens might get one or two seeding operations and the weaker ones five or six. And, of course, they don't need to be done all at the same time. There are uh, some really good examples of where courses chip away with seeding over a period of time rather than blanket treatments to all the greens. Again, perhaps making sure that the golfers don't notice it if one or two greens are, are have been seeded and the other 15 or 16 are, 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 aren't does make achieving consistency that little bit more difficult and then the subsequent af- aftercare needs needs to be tailored but just work out ways to achieve what is needed in and around your golf schedule and ultimately it's about working out what you can get away with yes yeah it is and and that is, and again you know none of this is prescriptive is it this is all about 
um, the the art of greenkeeping. You know, the skill of greenkeeping, of kind of managing a change without anyone noticing it, and sort of you know just doing what works for you. Well, I think that was that was at the heart of the disturbance theory: getting away from pragmatic advice and helping greenkeepers and course managers improve their understanding of the situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was never prescriptive. It was all about, you know, just giving people the sort of understanding, you know, of trying to find out the answer for themselves. Um, but it's, yeah. it's true to say that we, you know, of course we really do. And this is the problem really, is, is like we move we, we move from one maintenance in phase one to, to a, a new kind of maintenance in phase two. And so, you know, we really do need to learn some new tricks in phase two. And so, it, you know, it does require an open-minded approach. Yeah, and there's, of course, there's new innovations coming along all the time, mm. things like sand injection. And if you think that in relation to, to phase two, it allows us to get sand into that soil profile with less damage to the surface. New, new mowers. Think of how Im the cut quality of, the, of these new of mowing technologies improved, even in a in a ten year period. Yeah. That then allows us to raise cutting heights, maintaining the same level of performance, but minimizing disruption or disturbance pressure on on the turf. Yeah. Then, kind of, I don't know if you've heard. Tom Stidder speak yes. a shout out to him He's been about, about the mower and the mower setup unbelievable interesting stuff just how a subtle change in in the setup of the mower can elevate performance and reduce disturbance pressure yeah he's very good as Tom isn't he really good really really interesting then things like when you mow and we see this during during championships just the difference that a dry cut might make in terms of ball ball quality and green speed it just makes the put the preparation of, of of surfaces that much that much more straightforward. Of course, it's not always possible. Golfers want to be out first thing in the morning, so of course we've got got to mow in in less than ideal conditions sometimes. Then we think about how the industry is moving on in terms of the better understanding of nutrition and and growth regulators. I think this is where clip yield will become a really interesting tool. It'll help us tailor nutrient to specific greens and keep growth quiet. I I love and still do that that historic image of of greenkeepers at St Andrews cutting the the eight, the eighteenth on the old courts with scythe, scythes. Yes, yes. You think, oh, growth is the last thing that 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 they wanted. Yeah. Um, and I remember the Godfather telling me about using push mowers on greens. It taught you two things. Yes. Don't apply too much fertilizer. Yeah. Because you couldn't keep up with the growth. Yeah. And how to set the mowing blades correctly. If you think about that in relation to the disturbance theory, maybe over a cup of tea or a couple of pints, but that kind of, you know, that, that typifies it all really well. Yeah. Then the final part, yes. the new seedlings need growth to nurture establishment. Yes. So again, the timing of, of the timing of nutrition is so important. Consider the nitrogen source. What's in that bag? It's about having a full understanding of what you're trying to do. And the final point in this is invest in the seed and the seeding process. That That is absolutely critical. When I do presentations, I sort of like sometimes come up with this crappy joke, which is like, um, greenkeeping is really, really easy. All you need to do is get everything right. And um, yeah, that's absolutely just, right. Yeah. You know, and I think it's true, though, isn't it? When you kind of when you start talking about it, that's why it's impossible to 
to talk about any of this in any kind of concise way. You know, Glenn, Glenn keeps saying, um, that, that, you know, that we should try and, you know, really, really simplify, you know, the discernment theory. But actually, it's not simple. It's a highly skilled and nuanced process that um that people need to get their heads around and that's you know yeah uh, so uh, so many factors there's so many layers yeah um, and and you know that's i guess that's what makes the job incredibly interesting yeah it is yeah it is yeah exactly it's why we do it yeah but i think the key thing and then the whole point about the rebalancing of phase two is that you know our top dressing inputs do need to be radically reduced, not only because we've got the soil profile, you know, in good order and so like 150 tonnes of top dressing per hectare per year is now not needed, but actually it's got to be reduced because we've got new seedlings to be thinking of. Yeah, absolutely. It's light dusting during the plain season and ideally no bushing. Yeah. So if you can top dress before rain or irrigation to wash its face or, or, or wash it into the sward base, but, of course, we've got to be mindful about ensuring that, that we don't let organic matter build up. Yes. Um, anywhere near this. But we don't need to be anywhere near the same level of dressing as we are in, in phase one. Maybe, I don't know, 80 to 120 tonnes. But we're, we're trending downwards yes. and we're applying that top dressing in different ways to the surface. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're on target with our organic matter. and We've got to keep it there. But we can do that with way less inputs. And, you know, radically reducing the level of top dressing as we go into phase two would mean that our nutritional inputs, you know, also need to be reduced during phase two. You know, you can't take, you know... Uh, yeah, significant. Uh, you know, you can't halve your top dressing and not think about the impact that it's going to have on your on your nutrition program. So yeah, you, we're 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 scaling back in that regard. And so essentially, phase two, when you change something like that level of top dressing, you know, it's a complete reset, isn't it? Yep. But without too much of a, a jolt, we're look, we're definitely trending down in phase two. But we're 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 keeping a tight eye on monitoring performance. And perhaps I do think this this is where clip yields really going to play an important part. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you just do what you need to, don't you? Yeah. And this is where our team sort of you know do get involved and do try and sort of uh, become involved in sort of you know you know constantly trying to review fertilizer programs actually because you know we've got to if we if we're progressing through this you know we've got to manage a reduction in nutrient inputs you know to to drive that development and you know greenkeepers need help with that there's no two ways about it you know we our team are experts on on efficient nutrition and so they can really help you through this process and so yeah it's sort of you know our guys will sort of pick that out quite naturally if we don't need to support massive levels of top dressing then we we don't need as much fertilizer but i think the key here is not to go too low with our nutrition yep we've still got our services we've still yeah. got plain performance to think of as well as nurturing those seedlings to establishment remember we're not thinking about stress at this stage no. it's just about being sensible with our nutritional inputs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, phase two is about seedling, so it's not about stress. So we're yeah trying to be sensible. Um, and so, what about irrigation? Then is are we sort of how how are we managing that? Same. We are thinking about nurturing those seedlings through the establishment phase. So again, yeah, careful management to to make sure water is available to prevent wilting. Get those seed seedlings to establishment. 
we don't want any any drought stress. That will just send us backwards, as well as compromising playing performance. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we're still working to our sort of 25% volumetric moisture contents, I suppose, but maybe being sort of a little defensive around those sort of germination and establishment events. Absolutely. But don't forget the, the, the role of good surfactants. They're really helpful in that regard, getting the water optimally into into that soil profile to maintain optimum turf and soil health. Yeah, exactly right. But of course, we go back to it every single time, you know, at the heart of all this is is that we're working towards our playing quality targets and looking at them. You know, phase two is, you know, is about monitoring uh, green speed and scoring the smoothness, you know, with the bobble test. You know, it's good to see that come back, isn't it, as a sort of day-to-day way of keeping your focus on the performance of the greens so that no one notices as the greens evolve. And hopefully the sort of, you know, the, the, the sward species will begin to transform during this time quite rapidly if you've got the chance to really commit to it. But the trick being that it's sort of, it all happens without anyone batting an eyelid. Yeah, hopefully that's that's always the aim. But in reality, there's, there's plenty of tweaking going on during phase two yeah. as we come to work on what works for, for each site. It's a really interesting time. As I said earlier, it's the, it's the really classic time for, for agronomy discussion. Yeah, It will need coaxing along, needs regular monitoring, so we don't slip backwards towards phase one. Yeah, Again, that's why we do the, the organic matter testing. Yeah, constantly needing data, as you said, performance data, organic matter, soil lab data to keep guiding our strategy. Don't want to slip and we need to keep moving forward. Yes, this is not wishy-washy agronomy, is it? This is data-driven, uh, targeted agronomy, isn't it? But we, we shouldn't gloss over the fact that uh, if we're thinking about data... That we are currently, Richard, lacking. And it's not your fault, by the way. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. We are currently lacking an essential tool in this regard, aren't we? That would really help to guide the process of establishment and speed it up. Uh-huh. I know exactly what you're going to say, Henry. Yes. Well, we've talked about it before. And, you know, what we need is a quick and accurate way of measuring small species composition. Because if we had that, then we could track progress and really understand what works for us and what doesn't. And so we could like compound our, uh, our successes and sort of move things along quickly. Oh, absolutely, Henry. It's, it's a topic that always comes up in our meetings. Yeah. We are aware that a quick and accurate sword count would be a game changer. Yeah. That would just help sort this out once and for all. Yeah, you know, greenkeepers are great at hitting targets, I think. See what's happened with the organic matter content testing, you know, sort of, you know, that the reason why a lot of the courses now are in, at the end of phase one is because of the testing. It's It's just that whole idea of kind of working towards targets. So we need that with the grass tights, don't we? So I can leave that with you then, Richard. Yes, yes, please do. I'll do my best. Good man. And um, I'm sure that we'd all be happy to contribute to that. You know, that is very much a sort of greater good issue. Okay, so the end of phase two is reached when we feel that, currently we feel that, we're in a position, or the surfaces are in a, con- a, a condition that we might think about putting some pressure on the power so that we might 
you know, lose it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And so the emphasis, the agronomic emphasis changes as we go into phase three or during phase three, when when we're now moving from the establishment of new seedlings and we've succeeded with that and we move to trying to see off or creating a less comfortable environment turn the notch up a little bit against the annual metagrass but you know we've gone on for quite a while there Richard haven't we so I think we should probably take a breather at this point I know everyone's <laughs> everyone's breathing a huge sigh of relief I would think and uh and let's talk about completing the process next time you know what what um phase three and phase four are all about yes absolutely there's still plenty to get through. Yeah. A good amount of agronomic chat to come. Yes. Okay, there is indeed. So thank you, Richard, for the time being, for coming along and sharing your thoughts with us. You know, I've always found your way of thinking to be extremely influential. And so it's really good to hear from you. My absolute pleasure. Can't wait to finish the story next time round. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so next time we're going to talk about phases three and four. When no doubt we will need to learn a few more new tricks. We will indeed, but nothing too complicated. No. Very good. Okay. Thanks a lot, Richard, and we'll catch up again next time. Very good, Henry. And you two still seem to be on the same page. Yeah, pretty much. And so we will play the second half of our discussion next month uh, because we went on a bit. You agronomists, Henry. You're as bad as greenkeepers. Well, Glenn, it's my favourite time of the month. It being your application... Tip of the month. You're very kind, Henry. Okay, so don't keep us in suspense for any longer. What is your tip for this month? Uh, well, since it's January and it can be a tough time of the year for everyone to stay positive. Yes. Uh, but we do have a little bit more time with a few frosts occasionally. I thought I'd try and cheer everyone up with one of my favourite fun subjects. Excellent, Glenn. What's that then? Labels, Henry. The legal document that adorns your bottle. Wow. Um, I'm not sure that's going to cheer anyone up, Glenn. Now hear me out, Henry. Let's see if we can have a little fun with labels. Okay, Glenn. I'm game. (laughs) Okay, let's start from the beginning. What is a label? Well, it's a legal document written by the health and safety executives and it contains all the details to ensure safe and effective use of plant protection products. We at Syngenta have to provide loads of information that is all assessed and then his label is written by the health and safety executive to instruct the user as to how to use it. And assuming you do everything on the label, then the health and safety executive deem the risk to be acceptable. Okay, so... Yeah, assuming that you do everything on that, uh, what we're calling legal document or the label, then 
you know, the health and safety executive uh, deems that product to be safe to use. Indeed, they have evaluated all the possible outcomes to human health, environment and a number of other factors and they deem it safe. Yeah, okay. So obviously we all understand why it's important to read and understand the label because that's the rules to ensure that the product is both safe and effective. Indeed. Now it's worth knowing that it's an offence not to follow the statutory conditions on that label and any company or individual failing to comply with these statutory conditions could face prosecution. Now, the exact penalties can vary depending on the offence, but they could be fines, prison or both. Yeah, and so we really do need to take this seriously. Yes, we do. So knowing how important they are, you'd think they'd make them a little easier to read, wouldn't you? Yes, you would, Glenn. And this is, I think, probably everyone's bone of contention because the product labels are generally really badly written aren't they and really difficult to sort of understand exactly what you need to know you know they can be really difficult to wade through at times yeah they can particularly at five o'clock in the morning when you're trying to fill up a sprayer to get out in front of golf yeah so henry here's my january tip of the month are you ready? Yeah, ready and waiting, Glenn. Print out all of the labels you may use in the season. Okay. You can find them pretty much on any Google search, manufacturer website or good distribution websites. Yes. And then you and your spray operators all sit down on a frosty morning with a cup of tea and a highlighter pen. Okay. Moulong? If you like, Henry. And then between you, sit down and go through them all together and list the important factors on a chart that matter to you. Yes. Well, this actually sounds good, Glenn, and so much fun. I know, Henry. It's one of my favourite things to do. Yes. So are we in the realms of another list, Glenn? Yes, we are, Henry, because inside that document are all the things you need to know to make sure you are using that product safely and effectively. Things like... What protective clothing should you wear? What is needed? How close can you apply it near to water? How many applications a year can you use? What is the rate? Now, is that a maximum rate or the only rate that you can use? What areas can you apply it to? What diseases can you apply it on? When can you apply it? Are there any other special restrictions that limit its use? Can you apply it to newly sown turf? What water volume are you allowed to apply this at? Can you put it in a knapsack? And what do you do after spraying? Okay, so what you're saying, Glenn, is 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 put yourself together a checklist of all the important information that you're going to need and then go through each label in January and summarise them so you're absolutely clear about what you need to do for each product. And, you know, when you put it like that, it's it's not too bad, actually, is it? And actually could save you a load of time later on because it's all vital information. Yeah. Now, remember, it's your legal obligation to do this anyway, so you may as well do it properly. And if you get all of this in one neat, tidy document, there's probably only 10 products you use maybe with a plant protection product label. 
Okay. So you can pull them together, do them between you, get them in a nice chart, put it in language you understand that is relevant for your site, and then you've got it. And just imagine the fun and giggles you'd have as you look through the labels together and hunt for pieces of information that are all written in different text in completely different ways. And all of that information is on different places on the label. It's oh, no. like the health and safety executive team have created a treasure hunt for you, Henry. Yeah, it's infuriating, Glenn. <laughs> it is, but if you sit down and you do it together, actually you can make some really nice documents out of this and learn loads as well because all the information on there is stuff you want to know. It's just not easy to find. Yes. Now, you can then fill in your newly made chart in language you understand with all the products that you use, get all your spray operators to sign the bottom of it to say you've read the label. Yeah. And then I guarantee you will be the best team in the country. If you showed that to the spray operator of the year committee award, you'd probably win it straight out. You'd have an amazing wall chart that you can all be proud of and you would all be much better educated. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly it's simple stuff, isn't it? It's just kind of making good use of that time in January, isn't it? And also, I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking that it sounds like a really good workshop for a future BTME, Glenn. Yeah, I reckon so. Do you reckon people would vote for that? Fun with labels with Glenn and Henry. Well, I'm sure they would, Glenn, especially if I promised to bring some oolong. Well, I'll bring the Welsh cakes. Okay, Glenn, that's it for another month. I don't know where it's gone. And so all that remains now, and I know everyone's waiting for this, it's your poetic summary for the month. Thank you, Henry. In January's chill, the greenkeeper's domain, in the UK and Ireland, where winter does reign. Our palette of greens, now subdued and still, no growth to be found on the frost-kissed hill. The turf lies dormant beneath a cold shroud, as temperatures plummet and whispers of cloud. Leaf wetness lingers, a dewy embrace, a shimmering blanket on each grassy space. The mowers at rest, the aerator still, no need for the fertiliser, the soil to fill. Disease lies dormant in the frozen ground, awaiting the fall, ready to rebound. So in the hibernation of fairways and greens, the greenkeeper tends to their dormant scenes. In the stillness of January, a quiet crusade for the course of eventual rebirth in spring's splendour cascade. Very good, Glenn. Is that the last one? I don't know. I think there's three more, Henry, before I complete my book. Brilliant. Um, Feels like it's been going on for years. Yeah, tell me about it. Anyway, well done. And I think, uh, you know, I think they're getting better. They're getting longer. (laughs) Yeah, they are. Anyway, so that's it for uh, for another month. And all that remains is to say farewell and see you all at BTME. Yes, indeed. Listener approaching, Henry. On the horizon, Glenn.